podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Shut up and sit down. Hey guys, Sai, and welcome to Ace Podcast. On our channel, you will find podcasts, interviews, and content on a variety of subjects, including football, mental health, films, wrestling, true crime, conspiracy theories, music, and more. We upload three shows a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We're constantly adding new series. We have new guests every week. We've had podcasters, doctors, uh, ex-footballers, authors, journalists, pretty much uh, a bit of everything, X-Factor finalists. The, uh, the best way to support us and help keep it, keeping us bring good shows, new series, great guests, subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash acepodcastnation. Leave comments, share the videos and posts. Uh, today's show is on football, and I'm uh, thrilled to have ex-Scottish international, uh, former Cardiff City, Rangers, Dundee and Aberdeen midfielder, uh, current head coach, at, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Hakoa. Sydney City East FC, uh, Mr. Gavin Ray is joining me. Welcome, Gavin. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, uh, so you're uh, you're coaching then at the moment out in Australia. So yeah. Got to get the weather and the football. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been good. I've been coaching at a semi-pro level for about, well, since I arrived, basically. I was assistant coach first and then head coach for the last sort of three years uh two well one was as a player coach still i was still playing i played till i was like 39 semi-pro um and then i took over just head coach so just coaching um which i love it's it's been great a great experience learning a lot about you know managing players and we've got budgets we're at, at one tier down from like the a-league um okay, yeah in New South Wales, so it's like a high highest level you can go before going A League. So it's a decent decent standard. Um and it's you know, we, we pay we pay our players. Um and so you get to to learn all about basically managing a football team, which has been great. Yeah, I guess um when you go from player to manager, one of the biggest um sort of obstacles or changes is having to sort of manage different personalities and get them all pulling in the right the same direction mm. some players re, you know respond to a bit of a telling off some will respond to a bit you know need a bit more encouragement or whatever um yeah. which obviously as a player you're not as worried about that sort of stuff because you're concentrating on your game and the tactics and the team did mm. you find that difficult to sort of go from that to that or did being a player coach help that sort of transition yeah. I think being the player coach helped and also being captain in my last couple of years in football as well, you can sort of, it's sort of the bridge between, you know, the management and the players. Um, so it was quite an easy transition into into doing that. Um, to be honest, you know, you can't, most players don't respond to Balkans at all nowadays. No. It has to be, you know, it's just, that's totally gone completely obviously when I was growing up and, and coming through. Um it seems to have sort of turned around totally and um, it's got to be a bit more nicey-nicey, I think, with, with most of the players. Yeah, I um, suppose, I think I spoke to like Alan, ex-player uh, player Alan Moore about um, like the players, obviously, when you came up um, and I spoke to Cav and a couple of other people, is when they, when they, all well, they came up as apprentices, you had to clean the boots of the pros mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And like, um, Andy Campbell said that he, it really helped him to be cleaning the boots of like Juninho and players, you know, Ravinelli, players like that who are like world class and you you get to sort of pick their brains and speak to them on a daily basis. You're getting the kit ready and stuff. Obviously, that's gone. Whereas when I spoke to Alan Moore, who's involved in sort of academies and stuff, he was glad that it was gone and he didn't, you know, he said that the boys are there to learn how to be footballers and play football and not do jobs around the ground and stuff like mm. that. So it was like two different points of view, but both actually from Middlesbrough, both started with Middlesbrough. Um, where do you stand on that? I'm definitely with the younger players who definitely still be doing jobs. 
because it stood me in great stead, not just in football, but just in life going forward, just actual knowing and, and having responsibility. I think a lot of the kids nowadays, they just, yeah, I get, I get, you know, the point that it's they're just there to learn football. Hundred percent get that. But we were learning football plus. You're doing the responsibility side. You're doing. You're working hard. You, you realize you've got to work as a team. Like if one of your teammates doesn't do his job around the ground and it's not right, then all of you get punished. So you have to you have to step up for your teammates and they have to step up for you. And if they don't, then you, you find out quite quickly. You know who's the ones that's going to be with you as a and te- as a good teammate. But certainly discipline for me as a as a person more than anything. Um, I left left home at 15, 16. My mum, mum and dad done everything. My mum mostly done everything for me. Um, I know, and then you just go down and it's, you have to learn to do stuff for everyone else. And it's just a massive learning curve. And I think 100% they should still be doing it. I think um, just from my own experience, it, it certainly stood me in good stead. So I would, I think they should do it, but I can see both points. Yeah, I think, obviously, I've never played professional football, so I haven't been in the situation. But my opinion is that a lot of these players, if you play in the Championship or the Premier League now, as soon as you break into the first team, they're making more money in a week than some people get paid in a year. And I think if you're like 17, 18, and you get that sort of contract, you've never had to pay bills, you've never had to organise your household and your whatever, you know, whatever it may be. And I think things like that help with that sort of part of life away from football. Um, And like I spoke, when I had a sports psychologist on, she was saying that she thinks that more clubs should educate young players on those things as they're coming up, that they should have someone to help them, you know, work out to play their council tax or whatever it may be, because from personal experience when I was like 17 18 didn't have a clue about anything like that my my mum did everything for me so like when I moved out it was a bit of a shock to the system yeah uh, all my money was going out elsewhere and I had to do things for myself and phone people and sort stuff out and I guess when they but you know they've, they've you do that? how did you do that though how did you learn that by doing it basically and do it my, I was lucky um looking back that my mother from my very first paycheck um when I got a full-time or part-time job and then a full-time job she always took a little bit of money off me whether it was 20 quid a week or 50 yeah. quid a week towards keep and I resented that because I never I've never had a full paycheck but but now as an adult it's like well you never get a full paycheck because you've always no. got to pay something mortgage rent Whatever it may be, hundred percent. But the thing is, like, I know a lot of these academies. You know, they've they've got the great contracts and they get the car. You know, it's easy. They've, you know, before they're even hitting first team, they've they've got loads of they've got lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. But to give them someone else to help them learn to do basic things that normal humans do anyway, kind of defeats the purpose for me. They should be. They should have to learn that themselves. Yeah, because that's life you know what i mean yeah instead of giving somebody giving them someone to you know help them do normal day-to-day things they should learn that because everyone does it you know and you you might fail of course you might fail a little bit and these things happen but you learn whereas i think the, the ability to learn has just been taken away a bit because they're just giving everything straight away yeah um, and that's when they come up against tough times is when they don't have the coping mechanism to to deal with it and they just give up because they don't know what to do and I think that's the biggest thing from from my experience was yeah, it was tough and it didn't go to plan all the time but you had that resilience in you because you'd done stuff you'd been doing things for other people and you sort of learned quickly to to step up or else you're going to get swallowed up and that happened anyway but if you've got an opportunity to, to learn and how to deal with that first and I think that's that's probably the biggest grounding that you can have. Yeah, and I think the fact is, like, whether you're a multi-millionaire footballer or someone who works a nine-to-five, life's hard, and the best way you can progress and learn is by making mistakes. And I do feel sometimes when I look at, like, young footballers, they get that taken away from them because, they, like you say, they are given everything. 
they get a lot of stuff done for them. So then it's like almost like they don't have to deal with anything themselves. So then, like you say, when they come against sort of tough times or things where it doesn't go to plan, they haven't got the, like you say, coping mechanisms or just the ability to deal with it as a human being, not even as a footballer. Definitely. And that's that's the biggest thing for me is um, I think that's why I probably think they should definitely still have that responsibility for sure. Um, And it is tough. I mean, I had horrible times, you know, in that first couple of years with ITS. It was really tough sometimes. You know, you, you make a mistake and you're getting absolutely hounded from your teammates, from the first great first team, and your manager and your coach, of course, you were really brutal at that point. And you're thinking, wow. But then you learn. You learn to deal with it and you move on. And I'm not saying it works for everyone. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. But just from my personal experience, that's what I think helped me, basically. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of agree. Um, so when I speak to people, particularly when I speak to like footballers, I like to go sort of back to the start and yeah. just see uh, see where you came from, what you did. So uh, you're an Aberdeen boy. What um, like what was your sort of upbringing like? Your brothers and sisters and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I've got a sister, an older sister, three years older, and my mum and dad. And yeah, very you know lucky to have a good good lifestyle. You know, nothing too extravagant, but. Never wanted for anything, you know, and it was very um, middle class upbringing, and it was great. I had a great, I had a great childhood. Cool. Did you um, did you always want to be a footballer, or was there like other sports you were good at, or? Nah, to be honest, I was not particularly good at any sport, including football. Um, <laughs> until, and I was a late, late developer, you know, like really late. Yeah. And like all my friends coming through school and, and even younger than that when I was younger all the all the players and all my mates were all signed up with clubs and I was never signed up with any club um, I actually think that helped me long term um, yeah definitely because it, I still had the hunger and drive just to keep going keep going I still wanted someone and it was like they already had it like they were going down to Manchester United Chelsea there was loads signed with Celtic there was loads signed with Rangers Boys signed Aberdeen, of course. Um, I trained with a lot of these clubs, but I never got offered any any like S forms or, or deals at that point. So I was sort of, as I say, a late developer and went from having nothing and just keep driving and keep driving and try and get something straight to YTS at Dundee. Um, and then all these boys who had the S forms, who obviously thought, "Oh, this is this is easy. I've got. I'm, I'm, I'm set. I'm going to be a footballer." You know, um, none of them made it. And that's not no detriment to them, and that's just my path. That was the path I was on, and I think it helped me, you know. Yeah, so how old were you when you um, sort of got into the Dundee Academy then? 16. So I left school at 16, I left school at 16 and went straight to YTS. Um, So I had no F-forms. As I say, I'd been trialling with a few clubs. I played like juvenile, so that's just like local sort of football league, juvenile league, um, and was in a decent team, but never, never got that next stage. And then just towards the end of my last year at that level, uh, things were going really well. And then Jim Duffy, who was the manager of Dundee at the time, came up to watch me against another team um, who had a striker that they were looking at as well. And we both played, both played really well and both got offered contracts pretty much straight away um, and then joined on a two-year YTS, YTS deal. So, like, that is quite late, actually, 16, isn't it? Because, uh, like, my uh, my youngest boy's in a sort of development side just under an academy and my oldest boy's in an academy. And they, yeah. um, like, the oldest one's a goalkeeper he's been in since sort of, I think, under sevens or under eights or something. Like, they do get them in early and, like, with Cardiff now, particularly, they um, they've got like the academy, then they got the development centre, and then they've got like a another one into that. Which yeah. they so if if they see players who are decent, but not maybe academy level at the moment, particularly if they're quite young, they get them in there so they've got like professional coaching and yeah. try and develop them up through the age groups. But the, I think generally, as a rule, by the time they're sixteen, you tend to get picked up or not. And so, yeah. you know, but then I suppose another thing I was speaking to the sports psychologist woman about was um, Tracy. She was saying like a lot of kids 
they get into the academies at whatever age, quite young. They think, particularly if they're like 12, 13, 14, they feel like they're, oh, I'm in an academy now, so I'm just going to work my way up through the ages, and that's it. And that's the same as the boys that were signed S form with my friends. So there wasn't so much all that opportunities and facilities around when I was coming up. You know, academies and professional coaches for all these um, for these young kids. There wasn't as much as that um, for sure at that point. But that it's exactly the same process. You know, these kids that are in the academy think, "Oh, I'm in the I'm in the Cardiff City Academy." You know, yeah. I think that. You know, and then they just they just stop. They think they've done it, and that was the same as sort of a lot of the boys I signed S form with, or sorry, that signed S form that played with me. They, you know, probably thought it's similar thought processes. You know, thinking, "Oh, I'm going down to Man United. I'm going to Chelsea. Oh, this will be easy. I'm going to do it." You know, whereas yeah. I didn't have any anything to fall back on. So I'm thinking, I'm I'm fighting. I'm scrapping. I'm going to do everything I can to get to this point. And you still need luck along the way, of course. Um, but it's just that different route. And for me, going at 16 was definitely the best option for me at that point because I was a late developer. Which, um, what sort of players were your heroes growing up? Or like, who were you pretending to be as a kid? Um, well, when I was growing up, Aberdeen were phenomenal. Um, they were like winning all the trophies. You know, I just thought that was normal for a club like Aberdeen, but Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager at the time before he went to Manchester United. So, you know, I used to go down with my dad and um, they had some great players, Willie Miller, Alec McLeish, Jim Bett, a midfielder, um, Charlie Nicholas, you know, some great players. And, you know, just for me to be able to go and watch all these fantastic players was, you know, was great. And I used to obviously like all these all these players as well. Yeah. Maradona's my hero. Um, yeah. I didn't ever think I was going to be like him, but he's, he's I think he's unbelievable. So, unbelievable, you know, yeah. I, when I was growing up, I think he was the best. They, um, so you're lucky, really, because, like, obviously, the Scottish Premier League is dominated by Celtic and, you know, previously Rangers. Um, so you're lucky in that when you grew up, like, Aberdeen was sort of at the top of the top of the tree. Um yeah. And they won the European Cup as well, didn't they? Of course, Aberdeen. So, I mean, Cup winner, Cup, yeah, beat Real Madrid 2 1, 983. I mean, I can remember getting a day off school. Um, but yeah, it's when I when I was going to watch them, I mean, what Sir Alex Ferguson done with them was, was unbelievable. I mean, we're the best team, winning all the cups and the trophies. And, you know, for a provincial club that hadn't had, you know, as sustained success as what they got, you know, it was, it was a great time to be a fan. And um, stadiums like 10, 15 minutes from, where, my, where I grew up and being able to go and watch them was, was, was really good. Great. So you signed to 16 on the, the two-year uh, yep. YTS with Dundee. Um, how old were you when you made your first team debut then? I was 17. Um, so it was my second year YTS. But I was very lucky to get my second year YTS, if I'm honest. Um, I was terrible the first year. You know, I was a, I was away from home. It was like I talked talked about doing these chores, doing these these jobs around the ground, totally foreign to what I've been used to. Um, in an environment with boys from all over Scotland, a lot more maybe gallus and confident than what I was. Um, so the first year, I really struggled, really struggled. Um, it's funny, I was kind of homesick as well. I mean, Dundee's like an hour away from Aberdeen. Um, I was homesick, which again just shows you maybe how not sheltered, but how protected I'd been in, at home. Yeah. Um, so, and the football wasn't going great. I was below the level of where I should have been or where I could have been. Just didn't just didn't go well at all. But towards the end of the first year, I started picking up. I started getting to grips with it. And at the end of the year, when they bring all the the YTS players in and tell them if they're going to get you know, a, a deal or they're going to get released, basically. What happens every year, which is horrible, um, Jim Duffy and John McCormack, who was assistant, the new team manager, says, listen, you have to go away. You have to work on this, this and this. So it was fitness, heading and shooting or passing in your touch and come back next year. We're going to take a chance on you. We think we've seen enough just towards the last few games to give you an opportunity. And just them telling me that changed my whole career. It was like, right, Confidence, 
bit of confidence. They've seen something. I'm going to go away. I'm going to work at these things. I came back and I played every youth team game, every reserve game, and I think five first team games in the second year. So it was like totally chalk and cheese to the first year. And it just shows you, you know, what confidence in football is, everyone says is, you know, vitally important. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, you know. Yeah, it sounds like it was a bit of a, like a sliding doors moment almost to like if they'd sort of thought, well, he's only done it for a couple of games at the end of a season. He hasn't done enough. You know, you could have gone, they could have said no thanks and it could have been different completely. Whereas well, them giving you that little chance and sticking with you and giving you a bit of confidence just changed the whole outlook of where you went. And, for yeah, sure. And how far back can you? We talk about, you know, a little bit of luck. Um, they could have easily been in a different mood that day or, you know, looking mm. forward to that day and just said, no, nah, he's not done enough. I was physically strong. You know, I was always quite physically strong. So even from when I was like 12, 13, um, I didn't have a technique probably at that point and was never blessed with great natural technique. Um, but I think just having the physical attributes and then the day-to-day training, towards the end of the year, I could start feeling really a lot better. And I think I'd just probably done enough. But yeah, for sure, they could have easily just said, nah, you know, that's, that's enough. And you go somewhere else and you might go part-time and you might never get the opportunities, you know, I did I did have. And that is, that is exactly that. As footballers, you need a bit of luck along the way. Oh, yeah, definitely need luck. Did you feel uh, like the sort of pressure to perform when you were young? Or was it just like, you're so young, you sort of just play and you focused on training and playing and hard? Or did you feel like there is like that extra pressure going into the first team? Um, not so much at that point. But if you'd asked me the year before, I would have probably crumbled, you know. But again, it was just the confidence. Like in this, the second year, when I went into the first team, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm ready. And that is such a so far polar opposite to what it was the year before um but just a bit of self-belief a bit of confidence from others and yeah i just felt i felt fine going in there as i say i was physically strong enough you know i was never physically inferior to peers or you know older older people at that point because i was always strong enough so um it was more about the technique and the, the ability wise that i had to just make sure it was on, on on my toes so that was probably the biggest thing yeah, and you went on to make uh, 200 appearances for Dundee that time round, which is this massive amount. I mean, I know it was a wide, like a wide ago, yeah. but it's still a, a, you know, it's a big amount for uh, to stay. Do you ever feel like you may sort of be a one club man, or was there always a sort of desire to go test yourself elsewhere? Oh, there was always desire to go and test myself, you know, at other clubs because um, I'd broken through quite early. I'd been, you know, 17, and then went into the team and then was playing and then came out of the team, the managers changed and then sort of fell out of favour with the new manager and then he left and then got back in favour and then we got promoted to the Premier League. So there was, you know, over a, it was a long period of time, but when I was in the Premier League and I was playing week to week, um, that's when you start getting more, you were noticed more obviously. And because I was playing every week and I was playing well, and I was scoring goals in the Premier League, not lots, but enough, you know, as a midfielder yeah. for other people to to sort of notice. Um, and you hear whispers, you hear of interest, and once you hear that, then you think, you know, I, I, I would obviously I'd love to try and, you know, go to the top level and, and play at a big, big, massive club. Um, but Dundee as a club were fantastic to me throughout my career, you know, and obviously signed for them three times. So, mm. but that first time, the first time was great, and it was a. Uh, it's always a place I'll, I'll fondly remember, of course. It's, um, I think in Scotland as well, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the the amount of eyes on and on like the product as football in the Premier League compared to the leagues below is huge. So like, mm. for instance, in like Wales and England, you'll know about the Scottish Premier League and you'll know about Rangers, Celtic, Aberdeen and you'll know what's going on. But I couldn't tell you anything about any of the leagues below that yeah. so like you say when you get up to that sort of the premier league suddenly there's a lot more eyes on you is that fair to say that there's a big difference yeah. in uh, sort of viewers or people who yeah are no, sure. yeah no without a doubt you know i mean i think it's the same top league in every 
Mm. Uh, Although obviously the championship in England uh, Wales is, is still a huge, huge, huge league as well. And all the leagues are, but it's in terms of numbers, for sure, you know, the Premier League is obviously where you want to be and um, whether you get all the live games and, you know, all the reporting, most of the reporting's done. Um, the lower leagues are, you know, pretty well followed, but not as well reported on because yeah. you know, it's, it's not a country, so there's not as many people going to watch these games, but... Um, you know, having played in that divisions as well as it's there's pressure in that divisions as well, but there's certainly not as much eyes in you for sure. So, 2004, then you made the move to Rangers, which you know, obviously at that point, I think Rangers were still, you know, Rangers and Celtic were in their pomp, and it was very much them, you know, versus each other. There must have been uh, like a big move for you as a Scotsman to go to mm. a club the size of Rangers, for sure. I mean. It was, you know, I didn't realise how big a club it was when I signed. And that's me growing up in Scotland. I mean, it's just, they are just a massive, massive club. Um, and obviously Celtic are as well, huge. Worldwide clubs, just worldwide famous. Um, and I probably didn't realise just how big they are and just how famous they are and just how well follow, followed they are. Um, and it was, it was a, the right move at the right time. It didn't work out. Uh, a couple of bad injuries there, when, obviously, when I was there. But, yeah, it was it was great to sign for a big club like Rangers. Did you, where, did you play in an old firm derby? I think I played in four or five, I think. Maybe four or five or four or five, I think. So um, you, were, you, yeah. were, you, were, you were lucky because then you played in the two biggest derbies in the world, in the uh, old firm and the South Wales derby. So. Of course, Dundee as well. So, yeah, no, yeah. I played a few. Um, yeah, and no, I played old firm games. Yeah, no, I mean that's, that's phenomenal, you know, to be involved in. Yeah, they. Um, I think sometimes people from sort of this side of the UK they don't realise quite how big the uh, the old firm derbies are, like worldwide as well. You know, they're yeah. watched everywhere. I um, um, spoke to a couple of people from America recently, and they've said like, when that's on, the pubs are just rammed in America watching and obviously a lot of the time is it's like early in the morning isn't it but um yeah same here yeah. same in Australia I mean obviously they've all the you've got their supporters clubs all over um and they all congregate and watch the games no matter what when it's on there's hundreds and hundreds thousands of people there it's mad isn't it because like when you think I guess a lot of it comes from the like the 80s where they were so they were doing so well in Europe and stuff because obviously like these days, it's like the the English Premier League is like everywhere and it's constantly sort of in your face and it's that and it's this. But it's, a, you know, it's a big sort of, it's a real good thing that Celtic and Rangers for Scottish football have made themselves into this worldwide entity so that when they do play, people are watching. Um, no, no, worldwide famous, like you say, you know, it's not just supporters of Rangers and Celtic will watch it. You know, even when I was playing at Dundee, I remember every time there was an old firm game on, we would all get together and watch the game, um, you know, on a Sunday and watch it and have a few drinks and watch the game. It was just like huge, huge. It's a huge occasion in Scotland and worldwide. You know, people just it just stop and watch the game because it's massive. The build-up is just like ridiculous in Scotland, like in press. It starts like two, three weeks out and it's daily, you know, in the papers. So it's, uh, nah, it's, it's huge, huge game. The, the atmosphere is intense as well, isn't it? It's just uh, loud and passionate, should we say. Yeah, no, I mean, on the pitch, like, you actually can't shout to your teammates because they can't hear. You can't hear each other. And that could be, it could be like five metres away and you just there's no point in even, like, shouting. You just can't even hear cause, just because of the noise. It's, it's phenomenal, yeah. It's crazy, that, isn't it, that you can't, uh, like, shout so close and yeah. just can't say nothing so like uh, yeah so then uh, you moved from rangers to uh, wales's capital city quite possibly the greatest team the world has ever seen in uh, cardiff city uh like how did that come about how were you sort of approached uh, i know that at the time there was a lot of rumors that there was plenty of interest from sort of championship clubs yeah so basically, my contract came to an end at Rangers in 2007. Um, Walter Smith was the manager by this point and actually offered me another year to stay at Rangers because I didn't really 
managed to get hit my straps at Rangers just with a couple of really bad injuries. And he offered me the chance to stay for a year, but you know, I was quite ready to go at that point and just get a fresh start somewhere. Um, mm. And the opportunity to move to, you know, uh, down in England, the championship or um, one of the leagues down there was something that was, you know, enticing. Um, I was speaking to Norwich because my old manager, Jim Duffy at Dundee, was the assistant manager there at that point or was the coaching staff, part of the coaching staff. Um, and Dave Jones, who had often went to the Scottish leagues and done pretty well. And, you know, kept an eye on a lot of the players up there. Um, he called my called my agent and then he actually called me when I was on holiday. And he was he was the one that was driving and, and he was the one that made me feel more wanted. Um, he talked about knowing me before I went to Rangers, which again, you know, I thought, you know what, he's, he knows the type of player I am. He was naming the type of player I am and what he wants me to do with the team. And he just made me feel wanted and that's why. You know, it was done pretty quickly. Once, as soon as I went down to, flew down to Cardiff from my agent. I think it was done that day or the next day. It was all pretty straightforward from there, and I was ready to move. Um, and it was you know, it turned out to be a great time. I loved it. Yeah, I can imagine it's quite um, like a big thing, like you say, because obviously with the Norwich thing, with uh, Jim Duffy being there, that must have been quite tempting to go there, um, and it shows how much. If someone's got the confidence in you, and they want, you know, they've they've got they don't they're not just signing you because they need a midfielder. They know where they want to play you, why they want to play you, and you know, like you say, it makes you feel wanted. That's going to make a big difference. Um, and I, to be fair to Dave Jones, he left perhaps failing at the last hurdle for Cardiff. He never yeah. quite got us over the line. Um, yeah, we had some great times under him though. But he had a great record, like you say, for, for bringing Scottish players over, like mm. McNaughton, Stephen Thompson, yeah. and just bringing them over and they, for very little money. And they always, you know, did pretty well. Um, yeah. I, I think Dave, Dave Jones, is one of his best strengths was putting together a squad. I think he was really good at that, you know, amalgamating a good squad together. Um, and yeah, he was, like you say, the film of feeling wanted and the fact that he knew me or he remembered me from before um, Norwich weren't really showing me you know as they wanted me as much as what Cardiff and Dave Dave Jones wanted me and that's that's what swung out yeah, it was just like yeah 100% let's just get this done what was um, what was Dave Jones like as a like as a coach and a guy because he sometimes in, in, in interviews he comes across as a bit sort of a bit bullshit and a bit I don't know bit arsey really but <laughs> but like I read his book um, and he seems like such a nice guy like a really genuinely nice person really like uh, what's the word I would use just seems like a, quite a kind guy yeah but that never comes across in his football interviews yeah I think I think you've probably nailed it on the head I mean behind closed doors and you know within the squad I think he is like that you know he's he's a good guy Definitely a good guy deep down. There's no like nastiness to him, um, or long term nastiness. You know, everyone yeah. can fall out, and you, you sort of you, you get on with it. It's a working relationship, but um, but I think sometimes when he's speaking to the press, or when he was speaking to the press when he was at Cardiff, and he can come across that way a little bit, maybe a bit arsing, a bit bullshit. But I had my ups and downs with him, um, but I've got nothing but respect for him. You know, he's he was doing that. It was a tough job. Tough job being a football manager. I know what it's like now. It's difficult trying to keep everyone happy. But, um, you know, very thankful that he reached out to me and managed to take me down. And had some great times at Cardiff and um, unfortunately fell at the final hurdle. Similar. Yeah. Did he, um, did he have a hairdryer to get out when it when, when was needed, uh, Dave Jones? Um, oh, yeah. No, he could. He could. I think every now and again he would. Um, Terry Burton. Definitely could. Terry was a little angry man at times, um, but great coach. You know, Dave didn't do much of the, the training, coaching, like on the field. Yeah. And he left that to Terry. And I, to be honest, I'm pretty similar. I let, I let my assistant do most, most of my coaching. Um, I like to do the coaching now and again, but, you know, he, he identified that Terry was a better on-the-field coach than him. 
and I like to let my assistant do my coaching, similar sort of thing to be a manager. Um, so I can understand that. But yeah, as a team, they worked. I thought they worked great together, um, along with Wilco and obviously Marge. Um, yeah, we had, it was great. Good times. I thoroughly enjoyed it. They had a really, really strong squad, and um, yeah, like Sam Aman was trying to take Cardiff to that next level to the Premier League, and he, just, we just never quite could get it under him. Um, do you remember? The, I asked. Uh, I've asked all the Cardiff guys this. Who were were there sort of that time? Do you remember the first time you met Sam Aman, and did you have any I, sort of preconceived ideas? Him. You haven't met him. No, because we still. Risdale was there. Ah, oh, Risdale was there. He left, did he? Because yeah, everyone was so big crossed over, didn't they? He just left. So ah, I was. Yeah, okay. The infamous Peter Risdale. Um, so yeah, he was an interesting character as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't like him. <laughs> Peter Risdale, he's, he's just a, like Sam man. Yeah, like I know that he sort of things went a bit sour towards the end. But like I respect what he did for Cardiff. He came in and he completely changed the way the club viewed itself. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he was like, "You're the capital of Wales. Act like it, and you should be aiming for the top." And he just changed the whole thought process behind the scenes, the fans, everything. Um, so Rio Ferdinand famously said that Ninian Park was more intimidating than uh, Istanbul. Istanbul. Um, I think like the Cardiff City Stadium doesn't have the same intimidation mm. factor, but it's still, you know, the fan base is incredibly passionate. Uh, you were lucky enough to play both. Was yeah. uh, what was Ninian Park like to play at? Ninian Park is honestly one of the best stadiums I've played at. I used to love playing in Ninian. You know, just what a stadium! Like proper old school football stadium. Yeah. Um, you know. Bit dilapidated at parts, but just the atmosphere was magnificent. You know, close to the ground, chaos and away end, and just just brilliant. I loved it. It was a great, great place to play football. Good pitch, um, nice closed enclosed uh, stadium with the, the terraces close close by. Good atmosphere, and yeah, I think I only maybe got one year or maybe two, maybe at Ninian. Um But yeah, it was amazing, amazing times. Yeah. Yeah, I, I miss that sort of the enclosed, being really close to the pitch and the the terraces. Just adds so much to the atmosphere. Um, and what they what they've done with the Cardiff City Stadium now as well is they moved the most loud, the loudest part of or the loudest fans within the Cardiff end. They've moved them to the opposite end of the away fans. Mm. And I think I can understand why they did it, yeah. but takes a lot away from the atmosphere because when you've got the away fans and the most vocal part of the fan base next to each other, they banter back and forward and that's what creates the atmosphere. And yeah, sometimes it can get a bit intimidating and you might have some idiots and whatever, but like that's what makes the atmosphere and the passion behind football. And I do Mm. think that they've lost that a little bit. I wish they moved the fans from the one end back up there, but that's another story. Um, so, like, yeah, you played with some great players at Cardiff as well. You were pretty lucky. Like, I always think, like, I feel, I always say, uh, Jay Bothroyd is one of the most talented players to ever play for Cardiff. He, um, and he's he's still playing now. I think he's playing in, like, Thailand or something. Oh, he's in Japan. He's been in Japan. Japan so, yeah, I knew, yeah, he's, he's been, been there for a while, hasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah mate, Jay signed and then training and the day after he signed, he was doing things with the football and like we used to obviously you play against players and you think, wow, he's good. He came in and he was unbelievable. You could see like why he'd been at Arsenal as a kid, you know, the actual natural ability he had. Big, quick, strong, two footed, skillful, can finish, everything. He had everything as a football player. Everything. Um yeah, he was he's an awesome, awesome player. Yeah, um, I think, I think to be fair, Cardiff was probably his most successful period. Where, like, in terms of putting together like a season of performances, I think that was probably his most successful period. Was at Cardiff, and he yeah. scored some uh, amazing goals. The, um, 
consistency. You've got consistency at Cardiff. And I think Dave gave him that, gave him that belief. And I think just the group, the group suited him as well. You know, we're all good guys, good mates. You know, everyone was close. And yeah, he, he flourished underneath Dave and at Cardiff. And he's, yeah, he's, he's a sensational player. Who, um, who would you say is the most underrated player from Cardiff for your time there? Oof, good question. Um, I mean, I know people rated Steve McPhail, but I think to the extent that what he was appreciated by his teammates, I mean, what a player. I mean, never hardly gave the ball away. and A great partner for me, you know, in midfield. Um, I thought he was a great player. And I know he was our captain as well for a few years as well. But yeah, I thought Maka was a, was a very, very good player. Who was the um it was the sort of the joker of the squad who would be uh sort of winding everyone up and keeping the sort of banter and the atmosphere going perhaps when you lose a game or that's pretty obvious, but Tomo. Tomo was yeah obviously always in that. Uh, I played obviously at Rangers with Tomo. He was at Dundee United when I was at Dundee as a kid, so we've we've sort of mirrored each other's career. Um but yeah, he's Tomo's good good banter, uh keeps the boys going. Um when times aren't going so well. Kevin McNaughton, good funny guy as well. Yeah. A lot of stories. He's, uh, he's a good guy. So, yeah, no, there's some, there were some good characters in there. Chops as well, for even, even all the sort of just the silly stuff he done. It still, it still you know, gets the, the squad close together. And Joe Ledley, we had some great guys, some really good guys. Roger Johnson, even when he was coming through, you know, he's yeah, yeah. Um, banter, but, you know, for like... Just different sort of banter. Everyone sort of bounced off each other really well with a with a good score. Roger Johnson was um he was one of the coming through. I remember when he played his first few games for uh, Cardiff, he's like a Rolls Royce of a defender. So good. Yeah. Really, really no, liked him. Great, great player. So um you made oh, I've lost it now. I think it was fourteen appearances for for Scotland. Yeah. How old were you when you got your first uh, first call up? I was actually 23 when I first played, um, so I was still at Dundee at that point. I hadn't moved to Rangers at that point, I was still playing for Dundee and played against Poland in my debut um, over in Poland, so I was 23 at that point. It's quite young, isn't it? I mean, it's, this shows that you were playing really well to get the call while you were playing for Dundee, you know, rather than playing for sort of Rangers or Celtic or someone yeah. in the Championship or the Premier League or whatever. The... Um, do you, were you nervous coming into like your first game for Scotland, or because it's like a camp, isn't it? So I suppose it's mm. not like you sort of turn up the day before and then you play. You're there for a week training and that sort of stuff. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you, you obviously notice a difference in training standard. You know, it goes everyone's quicker and there's you know some really good players. They were all very welcoming. You know, I've I don't really struggle going into groups of people, you know, I normally can go in and sort of start speaking to anyone and sort of relate with anyone, but um, obviously you get a little bit nervous, but as soon as the ball comes out, I always like feel, oh, I always treated football, always have, always will, as got to think of it, it's just a game, you know, even the FA, FA Cup final for, for Cardiff, you know, you've got to try and strip away all the fans and all the, it's 11 v 11 on a pitch, playing football, you're kicking a ball around, and just, I always try and bring it back to that. You know, it's, it is a game, and it's hard. That's hard at times to do that, but especially when I'm when I was training with Scotland, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, don't worry about it. It's just a game. Just go play. Do what you're good at. And just go and play football and enjoy it. Yeah, I guess it's like just doing what what's got you to where you are. Anyway, you know, you've got selected for for doing a, you know playing a certain way or doing certain things. You've got to just try and keep doing those things, no matter as you go up the levels. I guess. Um, so you had a little stint at Dundee after Cardiff before going to your hometown club of Aberdeen. Um, so what was like? Obviously, kids all over the world playing football. They're dreaming of playing, you know, being a professional, and they're dreaming of two things really. You know, they're playing for their hometown club, playing for their country. Like, which one were you sort of more emotional over? Was it? You know, playing, doing tunnel walk and that sort of stuff. Was it Scotland or was the Aberdeen like a big deal for you as well? Well, Scotland's always, always will and always will be the pinnacle for me. You know, playing for my national team, um, playing at Hamden for my national team. 
for Scotland in an actual qualifier on a Saturday at like three o'clock was just like mind blowing, you know, with all my family there. That's that's the best. That's it doesn't get better than that for me. Um, but certainly a close second playing for obviously the club I grew up supporting, which is like 10, 15 minutes from my house in Aberdeen. Um, yeah, it's, it's obviously very precious as well for sure. I always think um, like the teams in the like Scottish Premier League, outside of Celtic and Rangers, they must be um, like really motivated to try and like take them on and knock them off that perch and mm. be you know the first club to win the the league for so long. When was that? I can't even. I don't even know when the last time a different club won the Premier League in Scotland. Do you know? Oh, good question. Um... I think I do think it's like a long time ago, isn't it? It can be the eighties for sure. I don't think since the nineties. It has to be the eighties. Yeah. No, Aberdeen definitely won in the eighties. I think Hearts maybe won in the eighties as well, but since then I I don't think anyone else has won it to be honest. Yeah, so like there's gotta be like a big sort of motivating factor for the teams in that league, particularly the ones who are in the sort of you know, like upper sort of mid-table teams, they must be uh, desperate to sort of make that step up. Definitely, um, but it's such a big gulf in terms of finances yeah, because that's what I was they're getting say, so. 30, 40,000 people more a week compared to some of the other clubs. So if you think about that, you know, in, in terms of revenue and finance for the, for the players they can get, it becomes very, very difficult for the other clubs. Um, it's all because of the two huge clubs with such a huge fan base and a league where there are other clubs have got big fan bases but nowhere near the size they have yeah do you ever do you think we'll ever get uh, champions again of scotland which are not celtic or rangers or do you think just the finance is so the difference is so great and the size of the clubs is so different that it'll perhaps never happen or do you think one day Maybe. No, you're always hoping. I think possibly one day, but it would have to be like a like an anomaly, basically, almost. You know, like a Leicester City winning the Prem. Very similar. You know, not one of the bigger teams, but just having a phenomenal season, and the other ones not maybe doing as well and taking points off each other. I think it would have to be something like that for it, you know, to to be able to get another team to win it. Yeah, I guess maybe if the like one of the clubs has like a like a group of young players come up together and they can kind of hold them all together and they progress. Could the problem be, with that uh, is young players that go at these clubs, they just they get, get poached. Yeah. Because, you know, other clubs, and not just in Scotland, all over. I mean, that's, that's world football. You know, it'd be good for a club to be able to stick together, the youngsters all that time through it. But um, whether that happens, I'm not sure. Yeah, and then I suppose as well is the... Um, like Rangers and Celtic, they get more money from like Sky and stuff like that. So it's mm. like because they're bigger, they get obviously the crowd money, but they also get more money in sponsorships and TV deals and stuff. So then it creates this sort of vacuum where the other clubs can't just can't sort of keep up, which is sure. you know is a problem. But I mean, I don't know. There's not like a solution to it because you can't punish them because they're successful no. and big no, but no. equally you want to almost try and even the playing field a little bit to make it more than two teams sort of competing i know yeah. there's other teams who do compete but yeah they generally. do but it's generally as the, the, the two top teams are always up there but yeah it's it's always it's always going to be difficult i think you know i mean even in you know going back like um in the 80s, like Aberdeen and Hibs, maybe the only Aberdeen and Hearts, only other two I can think of that have won the league. But you know, that was only for a very, very short period. Whereas over 50, 60, 70 years, there's always been Celtic Rangers. So it's not like it's not something new, it's just probably magnified just with the press coverage we get nowadays. Yeah, they've, uh, they've dominated for a long time, I think, haven't they? Um, so yeah, so you were at your hometown club Aberdeen, and then you were, you finished off with Dundee, which must have been you know a nice way to sort of. I know you say you you played on in Australia as a yeah. like semi-pro, but obviously from a UK point of view, you finished off with Dundee. That must have been like a nice way to finish where you started. 
it was perfect the way it finished. Um, I was club captain last year, and we won the league on the last day. I just thought, you know, I actually had it in my contract that if we got promoted, I automatically got another year. But I was just like, there's no point because I could go back to the Premier League. I've played in the Premier League hundreds of games, you know what I mean? And yeah. wasn't guaranteed to play every week. You know, I'd sort of been there and done it. I was just thinking, you know, go out, last game, winning the league as captain, and the club you started it is just it's perfect. It's ideal. Just just cut just cut your losses now and and move on. And and we're ready to move. We're ready to move to Australia. My wife's Australian. It was just like it just all worked out perfect. And I just said to the club, listen, thanks very much for the offer, but you know this it doesn't get better than that for me. It's just the timing wise. So let's let's just call it a day. And I was happy to sort of have my own destiny, choose my own destiny, whereas mm. some other players get retired because they're not playing and, and they get released and then they're still wanting to play on, where I'd sort of, it was actually like, it worked out good, it was just like me, I'm saying that's me guys, I've, thanks for everything, I'm just going to I'm actually just going to hang my boots up professionally as of today, and it was perfect it worked out great Yeah, you couldn't have written it better, could you, I suppose Um so obviously here on Ace Podcast Nation, we do like a podcast series on mental health. Um, we've got one in particular which focuses on mental health and sport. Um, and we just talk about like the pressures of sport, the pressures and the traps which young players can fall into with social media and things like that. But also uh, we've discussed, like I spoke to Alan Moore, like I mentioned, um, and he was discussing the issues he's had since retiring, including like battles with mental health and a suicide attempt. Um, why do you think it's like sportsmen, particularly footballers and boxers, seem to be the two sort of professions? Which why do people think that they find it so difficult to sort of let go? Not let go necessarily of their playing career, but just re- that jump from playing to to not seems to cause issues. Yeah. Um... I don't know, it's, it's probably hard to explain why football and sort of boxing would be the two, but, you know, you certainly, you obviously miss the buzz of playing, first of all. Being around the dressing room, of course, is, is a massive thing. You know, you're in a team environment all the time. So when you leave that, you know, you're out on your own in the big bad world. You know, you've got to yeah. um, sort of cope on your own. And you've also then got to transition into like a, a real job. Um, and there's never, there's not any training for that. So if you are not a confident person, if you're not open to it, if you haven't thought about doing anything prior to retiring, and then it comes to retirement and you're retired, and then you've got to think, oh well, what do I do now? Then I can see for sure why people struggle, without a doubt. Um, I was lucky. I mean, not lucky, but I think I've I've always had an open mindset that you know it's never going to last forever. So what else can you do? And I was always open to trying other things. Um, I left the UK. I came to Australia. I had no job. I had no you know, career to fall back on because I went straight into football. Um, I ended up going straight into technology recruitment. And I've sort of been doing that since. But then that's going into an office where I've never worked in an office before. I'm in there with people who are 20 years younger than me earning the same amount of money as me, have more skills than me, and you've just got to suck it up and deal with it. You know, yeah. some, some people struggle with that, and I, I can to- I totally get that. Why? And I know how people, you know, might struggle to, to transition into normal sort of work life and just normal life after football where everything's done for you. You know, you turn up in this time, you're here, there, this is where you've got to be, your boots will be packed for you, you've got a game, this is when we're training, You'll get your food, you know, all that taken away from you, and you've got your out, and you've got to sort of cope on your cope on your own. So, I can definitely understand why people um, struggle with it, and it's it's not nice to see. But um, how we improve that, I think, is just by much more awareness of that transition in skills and making people aware that it's, it's going to be tough, and giving them the tools to again, it's, it's a coping mechanism, you know giving them tools to be able to cope with tough situations. I think the biggest thing for footballers is 
the addictions, you know, you've got addictions to uh, alcohol and, and gambling, um, and drug, drug abuse, you know, that's, that's a worrying, that's a worrying thing because then obviously that can spiral into a lot of worse things as well. And it's just, I think it's all about education. Just try to educate people as much as we can, you know? Yeah, I think a big part of it is, like you say, awareness and having support systems perhaps in place. Like, um, I don't know whether the PFA or the FA could perhaps do a bit more to help players when they do retire, particularly if they retire maybe <clears throat> not through their own choice. Yeah, that's so if tough. they've had like an injury then, because then it's like you feel like it's been taken from you rather than like with you, you chose to go out on a high. Yeah. And I think the only thing, the only way you can deal with any sort of mental health stuff, I guess, is is encouraging people to talk about it, getting yeah. people to talk about it on podcasts and news and radio yeah. and, and yeah. making sure that whether it's a retiring player or a young player or players who are playing now who are struggling, that they know they've got somewhere to go for that kind of support. I don't know how much that's in place, obviously, because I don't, I'm not involved in football. I'd yeah. like to think that these days is a lot better than what it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. I think no, there's still work to be done. I think there's definitely work to be done. I mean, there was nothing when I was playing and I only, re I only retired about five years ago. And there was not one thing in, in place at that point. So, you know, there's, that's, there's a, that's crazy. That is to me. There's huge, huge ways to be huge strides to be made. Um, I think for sure they'll definitely be trying to put more stuff in place. What they're doing and how they're doing it and how much people are aware of it, I'm not sure. I couldn't even tell you what's going on. And I'm a member of the PFA. I'm a member of both PFA in England and in Scotland. And I'm not sure how much is getting done. Um, I certainly think we need. We all need to be doing a, a lot more about it for sure. I think you know other things. You know, um, the divorce rate and for ex-footballers is phenomenally high because I think people come out of football, players come out of football, and then they've got to adjust again to normal life with their partners, and it's not all the the glamour of what it used to be. I'm not saying all footballers are glamorous because there's obviously different divisions, but yeah. You know, they're not playing football at all. So, A, the, the player doesn't have that release. And obviously the family, there's more pressure on the family then. And the divorce rates, it's through the roof. I mean, I think the, the, the rates as high as like 70 or 80%. And bankruptcy mm -hmm. as well is huge in ex-footballers. You know, another thing that's obviously puts pressure on mental health is, you know, people not earning as much money as what they were and not, maybe have saved enough when they were playing, et cetera, et cetera, and all that sort of pressures. And again, if you've not been dealing with that from when you're young, 18, 20, and you, that's your normal life to deal with that pressure, to all of a sudden have to deal with it, uh, it can be difficult. And I think that's where a lot of the people fall down, a lot of the players. And for sure, education needs to be better. Um, not saying there's not people trying, because there definitely is people trying to help, but we definitely need to be doing more. Yeah, I... I say it's really interesting that what you say about the divorce rate. I'd never looked at it from that point of view. But I suppose also when you're playing, you're out in the morning early training, you yeah. come back later, you know, midday or like in the afternoon. So then when you retire, all of a sudden you're together all the time. Maybe if the, if the wife doesn't work, they've got a lot more time together. And if they're, if the player's struggling to sort of cope with being away from the game, that's going to cause friction. And it not just changes, <clears throat> you know, all the aspects which you just talked about, but it also changes their routine for the whole family because the players not going training and playing matches and away, you know, players are away a good portion of perhaps every other week, you know, for three, four yeah. days totally changes the dynamic and you know it kind of work, could work the other way as well because I know when I was so when I was at Cardiff we had twins uh, so our twins were born in Cardiff and luckily for my wife that because I was playing football I was yeah I was away early in the morning not that early in the morning but I was home earlier so I was home like maybe one or two o'clock say um, in the afternoon and then that, the rest of the day I can spend the time helping my wife with the kids 
and, and helping the kids grow up. Um, whereas if you're doing that in a normal life or you come out of football and then that happens, you probably have to, if you've got a normal sort of job, you're out even earlier and you're, out, you're actually, you probably see your wife less. So you're yeah. actually, it's just, there's less dependency on you as well. So it can work, that can work both ways. Um, and I think that's what people struggle with. I mean, even now, like, so I've got a normal job in the city, I work in the city in Sydney, and then I come home and then I go coaching two, three nights a week, and then I've got the games in the weekend. Luckily, our kids are a bit older now, so the kids normally come with me to training or to the games. So, you know, we're all together. Um, but I can certainly see how there's strains on the family and dynamic either way um, when people retire, for sure. Yeah, like you say, it changes the uh, the whole dynamic, I guess. <clears throat> um, okay, so Gavin, thank you so much for joining me today, mate. I really appreciate it. Um, oh. Tell people where they can find you on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Razo77 and Instagram, I think. Same, Razo77. There you go. And uh, guys, you can find us on Twitter at AceCast underscore Nation. Uh, all the shows are available in video form at youtube.com, Ace Podcast Nation. Audio is at Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, pod.co.uk, and all, basically all the podcasting platforms. Uh, and you can join us, facebook.com, Acecast Nation. Uh, I'm hoping Gavin will join me now for a quick minute after this for some quick-fire questions. So uh, look out for that on the social media page. And uh, for now, cheers, Gavin, and thanks, guys, for watching. Yes. Sports Social Podcast Network.